Oh, it's good to be here with you. Thank you for your prayers for my uh, recovery from knee surgery. It's uh, been uh, a new experience. And uh, Roger Engler, for those of you that don't know, Roger Engler is going to have both of his knees done tomorrow. So you can be in prayer for that. That will be uh, an experience for him as well. Um, <laughs> for those of you who understand uh, this, I'm up to 110 degrees of flexion. And uh, doctor says I, have up to, I need to get to 135 to get to full mobility. So I'm making some progress. But, you know, to think that 17 days ago I had major surgery and now here I am in front of you is really quite an amazing thing. Uh, one night this week, I was laying in bed uh, waiting for the pain pills to work, and, uh, and then they did, and then I sort of entered an out-of-the-body state, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, um, you know, it, you take those pills, and after about, uh, where are you at, Roger? Where, where are you there, brother? After, it takes about 40 minutes, and then all of a sudden, everything is blissful. <laughs> And uh, but I didn't go to sleep, you know. I, I you know I went to and we've been going to bed probably earlier than ever because in my old age I get tired and I take my pain pills and I go to bed and I think okay here it comes I'm going to sleep you know. So I got into that really blissful uh, pain-free condition. What I also figured out, Roger, by the way, was uh, taking some clues at the doctor's office. Apparently the pain doesn't go away. Your brain just forgets that it hurts. Because <laughs> if, you, if you put your hand down there, you go, you know, that still kind of hurts. But if you lay there, you go, no, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> oh. But uh, I can't remember. I think it was, uh, um, which, which night did, was it Friday night that Dad died? Yeah, Friday night. I, uh, I lay there in bed and uh, lay there for about an hour and... and and I was kind of whining, you know, well, this isn't right, and well, that's not right, and well, the other's not right. And then all of a sudden I went, wait a minute. In less than two weeks after partial joint replacement, I'm walking on my own. I have pain, but the pain pills take it away. I have a wonderful wife who does whatever is needed to help me in the process, I have a mom and a bunch of friends who also help me by driving me around or doing whatever I need. I have a comfortable bed. I have a warm home. I have food to eat. And all of a sudden, I started to feel good about the world. I, I needed to stop and remember the blessings of my life instead of focusing on the difficulties of my life. Memory isn't automatic. Natural memory tends to be whining <laughs> We have to work to remember the things that we should be remembering. And that's one of the reasons Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. And he said, I want you to do this, and when you do it, I want you to remember me. It's an active kind of memory. It's not a passive thing. It's not like, well, if I happen to think about Jesus, uh, you know, that's all the better. It's a very active kind of thing. And so today, I want to spend our time thinking about one aspect of who Christ was or how God communicated him to us. And I want to do that from John chapter 1. Uh, follow please as I read verses 29 through 36. The next day, John saw Jesus 
coming toward him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This he said, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. This word behold is not, uh, is not, a, uh, it's not a small word. It's not a simple word. It's a command word. John said, Behold the Lamb of God. He wanted these disciples of his to get their attention focused on Jesus Christ, and it's interesting to me that in the very first announcement of who Christ was, the title is used, Lamb of God. And I want to think about Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God today, especially as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. The first thing that we see in the, in the use of this imagery of the Lamb of God is the picture of a sacrifice. You know, God uses many, many names for Jesus Christ. We could almost call them titles. They're descriptive names that help us understand him. But in the very first one that's used, he's called the Lamb of God. And no doubt, no doubt, in these Jewish minds who, were, who had been part of the, the worship system, which involved sacrificing lambs at the temple, when John said, look, there is the Lamb of God, the imagery went through people's mind of sacrifice and the sacrificial lamb, and now here is a person called the Lamb of God. And, and no doubt they began to think in those sacrificial Old Testament terms right away. And of course that goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And they shall take some of the blood from that lamb and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. From then on, from this day on in the history of Egypt, lambs were the primary animal used in making a sacrifice for sin. God had determined that he would deliver his people from Egypt. And he did a series of miracles that we call the plagues. 
And the last of those plagues was the death of the firstborn. And God said, I am going to strike the firstborn of man and beast throughout Egypt. And there's only one way to escape that. And the way to escape it is to follow the ritual that I've set up, which involves sacrificing a lamb and putting the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of the house and being inside the house. The lamb was sacrificed so that the people didn't come under God's judgment. The lamb gave its life for the life of the people. Lambs were the primary animal used in making a sacrifice for sin, but even so, they were also chosen to be a picture of the real sacrifice. The book of Hebrews really spells this out for us in regard to the person of Christ. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For them, they would, have, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. God told us that he gave us the sacrificial system to show a picture of the real sacrifice that was coming. The blood of the bulls and goats, uh, whether and, and if you don't know that in the Old Testament time, they would refer to, a, to the young of a goat as a lamb as well as, you know, we think of sheep and goats, and yet they saw the young, either one, as lambs. Uh, and so there's a reference to both there. Um, that blood did not take away sin. The removal of sin has always been by faith through grace. Those people believed God and it was accounted to them for righteousness. They, the sacrifice was the evidence of their faith. The real removal of sin, though, was based on the sacrifice of Christ. That lamb pictured the sacrifice that Christ would give later on. Those imperfect animals could not pay for sin, but God was going to bring himself a lamb that could take away sin. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, please. The, so we understand that the lamb pictured the sacrifice that was to come, but in that sacrifice there was also a picture of perfection. Exodus 12 says that with the Passover lamb, it had to be a male of the first year that was without blemish. The lamb had to be physically perfect. This was God's way of teaching about true perfection. Everything in the Old Testament system of worship was a type or a picture of the reality in Jesus. And so the lamb had to be without blemish. That is, if to look at the lamb, there could not be any physical imperfections on it. Again, the perfection of that lamb was not what made the sacrifice effective. It was the fact that God was basing their forgiveness on the sacrifice of Christ. But the Lamb's perfection pointed to Christ's perfection, which we read about in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. 
But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The perfection of Christ is demonstrated in this sacrifice, in, this, uh, in these temptations. And I want you to think, first of all, about the circumstances of Jesus' temptation. First of all, he was tempted during physical exhaustion. Forty days he was without food, and he was tempted then. Uh, when you are physically depleted, it is much harder to live righteously. It's easy to make excuse for yourself. He was tempted during physical exhaustion. Great lesson for us if, if, we, were, if we wanted to talk about uh, what we call stress and anxiety. If you're in a period of physical exhaustion, you need to realize that addressing those needs are important. But Jesus was tempted then. There was... Extra intensity in his trial because of the exhaustion. Also, he was tempted with a personal encounter from the devil. You and I will never know if we have been personally tempted by the devil. But if you don't know, let me just make this statement. The devil can only be in one place at one time. He is not the dark God. Therefore, he cannot tempt more than one person at a time. And for however many billion people there are, are, there are on the world, um, he's probably not tempting you because he just can't be everywhere at once. I don't know what it would be like to be tempted personally by the devil. Um, obviously, we see he has the ability to do some things that no human being could do. Uh, you know, perhaps the devil could take you to a place and show you something you've always wanted. And, and offer it to you right there on the spot. You know, he would have tremendous power. We have not been tempted in that way, but Jesus was tempted personally by the devil. And there's an intensity to that trial that we have not experienced. Number three, he was tempted with profound enticement. The devil said, here are the kingdoms of the world. Uh, he, you know, turn this food uh, into bread and so on. He was given the greatest temptations of all. And what were the contents of his temptations? First of all, he was tempted to put physical comfort above spiritual discipline. Turn these stones into bread. He could do it. No doubt he could do it. He made five loaves and two fishes feed 5,000 people. He could turn stones into bread. But... It was not the time or the place. God had not appointed it for him. And so he had to, he had to say, I'm going to be spiritually disciplined and not pursue physical comfort. Number two, he was tempted to seek a tangible confirmation of God's love instead of living in obedient trust. 
throw yourself down and let the angels of God come and catch you. He made reference, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that said, not one bone of his will be broken. And so God would have to do whatever was necessary to keep that from happening. And so if he threw himself down, the angels would have to come and catch him. Otherwise, God would be a liar on the prophecy in the Old Testament. That's why when he was crucified, they didn't break his legs. They pierced his side to make sure he was dead. But they didn't break his legs because the Old Testament said that won't happen. The devil said, look, make God show you that he loves you. Jesus said, no, that's not right. Number three, he was tempted to take the short path of sin instead of patiently waiting for the blessings of God. What did God give to Jesus as a result of his great humbling sacrifice of a life on earth and death on the cross? What did God give Jesus? Come on. Everything, the whole universe. What did Satan tempt him with? All the kingdoms of this world. Now, make note of this for yourself, friends. Sin is often the short path to what God wants to give you anyway. But God's path to that thing is a long path. And the temptation was, hey, I'll give it to you right now. No suffering on the cross. No humiliation from these people who don't love you anyway. I'll give it to you right now. That's a great temptation for us as well to get something quickly when God wants to give it to us slowly and in his own particular way. What was the outcome of Jesus' temptations? Well, in two words, no sin. No sin. Now, I want you to notice something here. It's very important. I think I put it on here. No, I guess I didn't. Let me tell it to you. Jesus didn't become holy By saying no to sin. He didn't earn holiness. These temptations demonstrated that he was already holy. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. There's the statements there. Jesus didn't become holy by saying no to sin. The temptations demonstrated that he already was holy. And that is the point of those temptations. He could not be a lamb without blemish unless it be demonstrated to the people around him. And he was indeed the lamb without blemish, the only perfect sacrifice. There's a third element of the lamb, that the picture of the lamb that comes to bear with Christ And that is the picture of humility. Humility. Lambs are not uh, animals that uh, are aggressive and defensive and so on. They kind of go where they are. You know, they'll run away if they get scared. But the scripture says this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We see this fulfilled in a couple of events, like this one from Matthew 26. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. 
Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How could the Scripture thus be fulfilled that it must happen this way? He could have called ten thousand angels. And He could have. But instead of that, He allowed himself to be tied up. Now, before that, he allowed himself to be tied up, I love one of the other gospel accounts where he goes, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, I am. And they go, they fall over. And then he says again, who are you looking for? And they go, Jesus of Nazareth. He goes, okay. Okay. That was the demonstration of his power. Could have called 10,000 angels, but instead... What he did was he just spoke a word and they all fell down. And then he went, you know, they tied him up with ropes. (laughs) If all he has to do is talk and you fall over, what good is the rope going to do? You know, there's another example, though, of his meekness here. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? The high priest had been, you know, making accusations and asking questions and and. And Jesus said nothing. He was meek like a lamb. Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, interesting, and I have never noticed it until this week. Jesus kept silent until the high priest said, I put you under oath by the living God. Then Jesus answered him. He wasn't going to lie. But he was meek in his approach because it was God's will for him to die. He was guilty of no sin or crime. He could have called the legions of angels, but he went to his suffering and death quietly, not because of a lack of power, but because of obedience to the plan of God. Therefore, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will. Jesus came as a humble lamb, a meek lamb, and he went along to the sacrifice, because it was God's will. I'm sure people around him saw him as weak. The truth is Jesus used all of his strength to stay quiet and peaceful while the will of God played out. And he did that for you so you could be saved. There's one more element of the the lamb picture that I'd like to look at, and that is the purpose of the sacrifice. And I want to go back to Exodus chapter 12 for this. They shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike the firstborn of the land, both man and beast. Against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The purpose of this sacrifice, the purpose of the Lamb of God, was to save us. 
When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Friends, when you hear the phrase, Lamb of God, and when you come to this table, and you see the juice that represents the blood of the Lamb shed for you, remember that God has taken away your sin. Someday, when you die, or when the rapture happens and you're caught up to heaven, you will be spared the punishment you deserve because the Lamb of God has taken away your sin. You are figuratively under the blood, like those people were in Egypt. They were in their house, and the the daubing of the blood on the door created a picture. I am under the blood. In this age, we don't apply the blood literally to the door. We get under the blood by believing in Christ as our Savior. And so I want to ask you today, are you under the blood? Are you there in that place of safety? If you are, then I want to ask you if you're living in the way that would honor God for His great sacrifice. Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people or make the people righteous with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. What we will do here today is an act of worship. It is a worship ritual that God has asked us to do. He said, I want you to eat this bread. I want you to drink this fruit of the grape. The bread represents my body. The The juice represents my blood that was shed for you. This is an act of worship. But it's only an act of worship if in our heart we are worshiping the Lord. And these verses right here tell us if that's true or not. Are are our lips giving praise to His name? Are our deeds giving praise to Him because we're living in a righteous way. God wants us to observe this worship ritual, but even more so, He wants us to have that heart of praise and that life of worship that honors Him. I'm going to sing a song today to give you a chance to think about the message of God's Word and, and, and to think about your life as you prepare to receive these elements I sing this song as a prayer for myself as much as for you. It's where I need to be, but not where I always am.